You're listening to episode 158 of 88 Cups of Tea with Yin Chang. Am I doing this right? <laughs> Hi, I'm your host, Yin Chang, and thanks for joining me on 88 Cups of Tea. This podcast is created to leave you feeling motivated from interviews with storytellers, where we learn how they create opportunities for a successful career without losing sight of the values that make us human. Woo, that was a really long run on sentence. What's up, storytellers? Welcome to 88 Cups of Tea's podcast. Whether you've been listening in for a while or you're a brand new listener, I am so happy to have you here. We have the incredible A.S. King on the show with us today, but before we jump in, I have a quick favor to ask. If you're enjoying the show but you haven't yet hit the subscribe button and submit a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, please take a moment to do that. Your reviews give new listeners a sneak peek on what to expect from the show. And the more ratings and reviews we get, the more we get featured so more people can find us and join our storyteller community and ultimately feel less alone in their journey pursuing the arts. So thank you in advance for that. Now on to today's guest, A.S. King. She is the critically acclaimed and award-winning author of Please Ignore Vera Dietz, Ask the Passengers, Still Life with Tornado, I Crawl Through It, and so many more. Her newest and very much anticipated novel, Dig, will be released on March 26th. In our conversation, we talk about balancing humility and ego, defining success, and finding confidence as a writer. We dive deep into what it means to be privileged and how we can be an ally to those whose experiences are different from our own. She shares powerful crafting advice on building strong characters and trusting your gut during the revision process. And we get a sneak peek into her newest novel, Dig, and the history that inspired it. A.S. King also created a writing prompt for all of you storytellers revising your manuscripts to help you cut all the unnecessary stuff out and refine your draft. Be sure to download the prompt over at 88cupsoftea.com slash podcast slash A.S. dash King. Now let's jump right in. So Amy, hello. How are you? Hello. I'm so happy to have you on the podcast. Thanks. I'm happy to be here and I'm doing well. It's Sunday. It's nice. Uh, it's cold, but you know, um, I'm inside. So we're all good. That's amazing. So during our pre-chat, we were just talking about you being at a conference. And how was that this this past weekend? Oh, that was good. Yeah, it was It was small. It's a small conference up in, in um, Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. And I've been there once before in conversation with Beth Kephart, who is one of my favorite authors and favorite people. And so this year, yeah, it was just a day. I did a workshop, did a panel and then and read, actually read for the first time from Dig at the Bethlehem Library that night, which I, I wasn't, I don't want to say I wasn't prepared for. I mean, Dig doesn't come out until March 26th. So but I had the ARC with me and I was there and I thought, well, they want to hear from this book. So I guess I'll give it a shot. And then I'd read it bits and pieces up at Vermont College of Fine Arts where I teach. So it wasn't like it was the first time I'd read it. And only the week before I'd recorded the audio for chunks of it. Yeah. So it went really well but to, to sort of, I don't know, when, when you're reading, you have to pick, you pick and choose. It doesn't mean the paragraph doesn't matter, but that paragraph may not be relevant to the five chapters you're reading versus, you know, the whole book. So it helped. It helped me sort of see what worked and what didn't, but it was really good. It was nice. 
Ooh, I love that. You know, this is a question I never thought of. Do you do you enjoy reading your work or do you get nervous? Because I notice, you know, some writer friends of mine, they get very, very nervous about reading and they say they are they're a bit self-conscious in how they deliver versus, let's say, something like spoken word poetry, where there's a certain rhythm and a, a rhyme to it for you when you read it. Are you very do you get very almost like transic? It's like a transic state or you just kind of go through it? It's a bit of both. I'm not usually nervous when I read. I love, I mean, even if it's not my own work, I'll mention Beth Capard again, but I read aloud for my family. This summer was her middle grade book, Wild Blues. And I love reading out loud. So that part of it isn't, isn't that big of a deal. But at the same time, like when I haven't done the audio, that I, I'd read another audio book of mine and I read the whole book. This one, I just read the narration, the third person parts. And that's where I get self-conscious because, you know, the other parts are being read by legitimate voice actors and these people know what they're doing. And I, and they can like, you know, if they're doing, let's say a conversation between three people, they can not only remember the voices that they've come up with for those three people, but they can recall them and, and have the conversation in those three voices. That's, that's what an actor does. I I just, I'm just a writer. (laughs) Um, I just sound like me pretty much. And so that's where I get, that's, that's definitely where I got self-conscious. But when it comes to the rhythmic, I mean, a lot, some of my chapters would be very kind of, I wouldn't say they're spoken word, um, but they they have rhythm to them. So sometimes I can get into it. Sometimes I feel like it was a good reading. Sometimes I feel like it was a meh reading, mm. um, but I can never tell because I'm inside my own head and I'm very unforgiving. Like it's part of something I'm trying to change before I'm 50, like being able to accept the fact that I do this for a living and that it's that is cool. I mean, mm-hmm. I love the job and that, how do I say this? Like I'm sort of overwhelmingly humble in order. I think that was, that's my makeup anyway. Like that's just how I am. I'm more mm-hmm. of a volunteer than a, you know, entrepreneur, if that makes sense. Yes, and so yes. along with that though, then comes this sort of, Oh, you know, I don't think I'm anybody big and I don't think I'm anybody, you know, famous or anything like that, which I, I still don't. I mean, I wouldn't think that. But that also then what goes along with that was, oh, well, nothing I'm doing is big deal. And that's wrong. I like what I'm doing. And what I'm doing is, you know, I do get letters from readers that are like, I needed to read this or whatever. And it's important. It's special. And I don't know why I can't reach that yet. But that's deep stuff. But yeah, for the most part, I like to read. And it seemed the audience likes it. And as long as the audience looks happy enough and no one's falling asleep or on their phone, I'm good. Amy, you are really, 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 really humble. It's crazy. It's very, you're so modest. You really are. Um, you, you remind me of my dad, who's Taiwanese and part of our culture on my dad's side. Uh, my mom's is Malaysian, so they're a little bit up, more up in your face and more known okay. to be like Jewish moms. And yes. But my dad's side is very much like anything good you do, don't mention because it's almost like showing off. And, it's, you yeah. know, it's very interesting. So it's a struggle for me. It's like just even here hearing you how you've gone through that a little bit of a you're like kind of warring with yourself in that way but it's just part of your genetic makeup where you're just super humble and modest the mm, I always thought it was something where mm, I would say oh yeah 
oh my gosh, my dad probably thinks I'm being too American right now. If I even say like, look, I got a, I got a 98 on my test. You know what I mean? And (laughs) then I realized, I guess that's not really a right word to say, because obviously you're very American and you have the same, you have, you're more similar to my dad than I am, you know? But but it might be my cult. It might be the the culture. It was funny. I saw, and I I don't watch TV. I don't watch, I don't keep up with much. I live in a cave, but um, (laughs) I saw a clip on somewhere on the internet. And it was this guy who's a famous actor who you would know or everybody else would know. I don't know his name. Um, But he was explaining because he is, I'm going to say, I don't know, is he, we'll say he's Scandinavian because I don't know, was he Norwegian or Swedish or what? But he was explaining that there was a word for this and the word and what we're describing, you know, what your father has, what I have, and that it's, you, you can't brag. Like bragging is really just not cool. And whatever he had said, I connected to it immediately and I thought, oh, I'm so relieved because, you know, here's this, you know, blonde, blue eyed, gorgeous actor, white guy. And mm-hmm. he's like able to say, yeah, no, you know, to whoever it was, um, maybe Jimmy Fallon or somebody like that. He was able to say, yeah, no, like, let's not do that. And, and, and they were like, why not? And he's like, yeah, well, it's just not, you know, let's not do that. That's too weird. And I think I would feel the same way if I was like, if. If I was one of those guys who people said was the sexiest man alive for the year, I think I would like, I would live in a hole for that whole year. I don't think I could handle that. Even if I was like, if I could look at myself in the mirror and be like, yeah, I'm all right today. This is going well. And then if suddenly I'm on the head in the front of people, I'd be like, oh God, no, I can't. Mm-mm. No, it's, it's embarrassing in a way. And then I look into it and I go, Amy, this could just be a self-esteem problem. And it could be like, I mean, I really don't know. Like I look at it and I think, well, why won't, I give myself credit for that. Or why don't I enjoy successes? Why am I not allowed to do that? And I, I think that part of that is just some weird psychological is, stuff. Are your parents very much like that? My parents are just really hardworking. They were always just hardworking. Um, yeah, they, they were kind of, you know, they would. I mean, do, I mean, if your mom and your dad like did something that you one would think would be really proud of were they ever ones to actually like share about it with the family or they're just quiet and they just keep moving along thinking like nope this is part of our job I, it's a little bit of a mix like they were but we never went out for a celebratory dad was named president of this board you know oh, mom damn. was named president of this board but don't forget, like the, the other thing was that what my parents you know did or you know my mom was you know worked with kids she's uh, uh worked with, um, she was, I had a special ed in nursing and you know, those sorts of things. There's not a lot of Atta girls in nursing, you know, a lot, there's not a lot of that, you know, there's, there's, if you save someone's life, it's like, that's your job. Mm. Um, so I don't know if that carried through, but you no, know, we were, we were generally not braggarts. Um, we just did things quite quietly and, and, um, yeah, maybe, so maybe I got it from, the, but, but it wasn't shame either. Like you weren't to be right. ashamed if you did something great. They'd be like, hey, that's great. But that's about it. Like you couldn't use it the next week. Say, hey, remember that great thing I did last week? Um, right. so don't, you know, this thing, a bad thing I did this week, that should level it out and everything should be fine. <laughs> and we shouldn't be grounded. <laughs> of course, I'm sure I tried that. But, you know, I don't know. I don't know really where it came from, but it's definitely, and I think it's an artist mindset. And I, I know I have other people in my family who are artists. And I think artists on a whole, I mean. Are super critical of ourselves massive uh, yes. massive and and on top of it you know we're not we're not walking the same path but you know that has that great retirement account and it doesn't have all these other things you know you are you're frugal by nature you're 
you know, broke often. You're just trying, I don't know. And it could be because I was raised in the eighties. And this is something I've been working on a graphic memoir. That's never, <laughs> it's now going to take a totally different tack. But the one thing that I've been trying to explore is, is the mindset of growing up being from 10 to 20 during the eighties and that, that age, I mean, 10, from 10 to 20 and the money focus that was put into our brains from everything, from every commercial we saw, every TV show, every MTV, every everything, um, and how money was what meant you were successful. And so part of that could be a, a, I don't know, like a, a weapon against that. Part of it could be like, well, I, I mean, I lived, I lived 15 years in Ireland. I was self-sufficient. And over there, it's like, I, the less you have or the harder you work that way, that's what you to be proud of. Like for me, it was like, okay, I don't go to the grocery store. If I'm hungry, I have to go pick a potato, pick a few, you know, harvest a potato plant or go to the chicken house. And that's what I'm going to eat tonight. That hard living is, that's what, what I'm proud of. That's if I look back at my life, I think, what am I proudest of? Or is it the novels? Is it the fact that it took me 15 years to get published and I was that stubborn? Is it this? Is it that? Is it my kids? Is it my marriage what what is it that is i'm proud of i'm i'm really proud of those years that we bought a house that was derelict we turned it into this this beautiful home and but most of all while we did that we were we were struggling and we lived through it or something so i think that's part of it as well like when i look back at my parents to connect to that question you know they grew up during you know the second world war and that was tough struggle it was a it was a harder time and you know, my mom grew up on a farm and, and it was, it was definitely rough at times. So it could be that too. It could just be the fact that, I don't know, I'm more wired to, to be proud of what I've survived versus proud of some thing I did or awards someone gave me or, you know, and not to say I'm not proud of those, but I can't brag about them. It's, it's just, oh, that's good. As long as the next book's getting written, that's fine. It's, it's so really, yeah, it is about just getting on with it, continuing the work. Like some of the proudest thing, like uh, my volunteer work has always made me very proud, but I don't brag on it versus corner anyone I can to make them understand that, you know, this area of the world needs help. And that's why I do it. So in a way, I'm more of an evangelist versus a, bra a braggart about it. I don't right. know. It's weird. It's weird. No, I think it's fascinating. And this is, you know, you've actually inspired some thoughts in my own head because on a more personal side of my story is that I came from an acting background. And when there were friends, I would get very uncomfortable. People would um, recognize my, you know, whether it was, it was difference between recognizing me versus recognizing my work. Mm. And I never understood what it was. And I still, I'm still trying to figure out what is the actual verbal, um, how to verbally uh, explain it. But I would tense up and I would get very, um, I don't know, to the point where sometimes I would get aggravated if people would just be like, oh my God, were you playing a certain character versus, oh my God, are you part of 88 Cups of Tea that, you know, that, right. that I love that episode. It really spoke to me. I was crying in my car. Like there was a huge difference in that. And there was something where I would gravitate towards that. And people didn't understand. I had friends growing up where they would be like, what's the issue if you get recognized? Isn't that what you wanted to do? Isn't that why you went into acting? <laughs> and it infuriated me because I think for me, it felt like undeserved attention, number one, in front of those uh, friends who work 
I felt way harder than I did who were going into, you know, they were like, quote unquote, the good Asian kids. They're the ones who chose to go into pharmacy, doctors, um, mm. business and all the things that my parents wanted me to do. And they deserved in my mind, I felt like they deserved the accolades for the work that they were the blood, sweat, and tears, and years that they've they're putting into their work. Meanwhile, for mine, I felt almost like you don't understand. I'm not. I'm not here for that kind of superficial shit. You know, like for me, mm. it's about connecting with the work and breathing life into a character and being part of something bigger, being part of a story. Like storytelling had its place in its world through the medium of acting. And I felt it was really difficult for me to explain to most people. It was interesting when you were sharing your story and talking about how artists, especially when you were like from 10 to 20 years old in the 80s, right? And mm. going against, okay, like everybody was saying you define success with money. It's just like a different concept, I think. Is. And is and it I is. felt like the way you explained it was closest to anything I've ever heard of before. So I'm going to have to like play it back and then write it down so I can like <laughs> know how to formulate my words, you know? Yeah, no, it's interesting because I didn't know you had an acting background and that's acting actually. I think, I think it's uh, being an actor and being a writer are have that similar thing. Like mm -hmm. I, I actually for in the beginning, I remember the beginning struggle where I was like, no, that's A.S. King. I'm Amy. Uh, hi. Um, mm. uh, you know, this is what I do. A.S. King is over here doing this. And I'll say, you know, oh, today I have to go and be A.S. King and I'll go and be A.S. King. And there's no real difference between us because I can. I'm sure you even just in this short time, you know, I have no filter. Um, so there's no difference um, unless I'm in an elementary school then I can't, you know, say shit. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but like, but I'm still me. And I'm just talking to, you know, 11 year olds, let's say, um, which is I mean, that's a new thing for me anyway, because I, I wasn't really publishing for that age group. But I've enjoyed it because I could take the same ideas that I was telling, talking to 18 and 23 year olds and 75 year olds about and bring it to an 11 year old and, and, and ask the question, hey, how come you think you should be happy all the time? That doesn't make any sense. Nobody can be happy all the time. And mm -hmm. you wouldn't believe the eyes go wide. And they're like, what is this woman telling me? I'm 11 everyone's told me I should be happy all the time because these sneakers I have and because I have lunch um, or whatever. But even when I think about that, like, oh, I made some, you know, 10 year old feel relieved because he or she did not feel, you know, didn't feel that they were allowed to have emotions beyond what was sort of sanctioned for them. Um, I don't go, oh, you know, I, I changed some kid's mind. I walk out and go, I hope they heard that. And I hope when they're 25, they remember that or it, it goes into them in some way, um, the way that those awful articles I read in Newsweek in 1981 and two that told me that when I graduated college, I'd make 100,000 a year. I'd be fine. This would be, you know, I'd have a retirement account and all this stuff. Um, you know, like I just I kind of had to come at, at it. I've been writing for 25 years, I've been publishing for just over 10. And last summer I did a lecture up at Vermont College about what is art and um, what was it called? It had a really long title. It was what is art and how do we make it? And once we make it, where do we put it? And once we find somewhere to put it, will we be happy? And that, I, you know, I've, I don't usually listen to my own lectures, but I listened to it a few weeks ago and I sat there and I was like, wow, I really need to take my own advice on this. I have to <laughs> listen to this like every few weeks. To, but what I ended up coming up with is what is success? 
you know, what is failure? Yes. Everybody's going to define it a different way. How many times am I asked, when am I going to write a real book? When am I going to write a grown up book? And and I'm like, you haven't read my work. My Mm -hmm. my books are grown up books. Um, But more importantly, like, when are you going to make your million dollars? And it's, I'm looking at them going, do you ask bus drivers? No one got into bus driving for making a million dollars or nursing or teaching or anything. Mm. Um, but why do you think I got into this? And then you have yeah. this other thing. And this, this connects with the actor thing. People think that you, not people, not all of them, but there are people who think that, that the minute you are on that commercial, that TV show, that whatever, um, or you've published this book, that you must have an ego. And this mm-hmm. is how it said to me, you must have an ego to believe people want to hear what you have to say. And that is how it's described to me. And I think I've really wrestled with that for years. And I go, okay, hmm. well, I mean, technically I have an ego because my brain would be really messed up if we, if I didn't, it's not really about, oh, I want I, what I think is important. You should think it too. It's more just, it's more like, here's some art. Yeah. If you dig it. Awesome. If you don't, don't write me a dumb letter. Yeah. Well, if you want to, I'll skim it and I won't be writing back. But like, you know, why would we waste our time um, sort of celebrating other people's failures in that way? Like if I read something that I thought was awful, why would I want to tell that person? In fact, yeah. in reading it and it's awful, I should close it and put it down and pick up something else that I enjoy. But as creators of these things, we're not doing it to be rich and famous. We're doing it because we like what we do. We got the job. We got the gig. Mm-hmm. So if you get the gig, you do it, right? Um, mm-hmm. It would be like, look, all my all my tomatoes were brilliant this year, but I'm not going to pick them because if I do, then you're going to think that I'm a, like a braggart about my you know, my tomatoes. Like that's that's ridiculous. Like you're going to harvest those and you're going to eat them. Yes, and that's sort of how I, I have to take it down to that level because this idea that I have an an inno- like a larger ego or, or and again I don't because of the psychology background like you know, we have, we all have those parts of our brains, <clears throat> but the idea that, that we must be big headed in order to be on camera or in order to be in front of an audience reading, um, is, is, um, it's false. It's completely false. And and most of the writers I know are really quite humble. You know, I mean, I am, I have the, I call it, I kick dirt, which means I look at my feet a lot, kick dirt. If people are saying something nice about me, <clears throat> pardon me, I tend to just sort of, <laughs> I just can't wait till they're done. Like, it's okay, that's great. You're, you know, the introduction is before I read. It's like, oh, and I'm okay. Well, that's great. Thanks so much. <laughs> and then I get up there and I read because what matters to me is the art. What matters yes. to me is what the metaphor that ate the metaphor that ate the metaphor for breakfast is really about. See if I can unfold it for the audience. Make them think they can go home, have a conversation, and and perhaps, I don't know, change their way of thinking just a little bit, um, be more forgiving with themselves, be less judgmental, um, whatever those goals are, which are, those are my goals. Um, I care most about the human condition. And I think all the, the bad bullshit that happens in the world from extremism to war to, you know, the big ones really come back to human condition. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so, and I mean, when I look at the human condition, I, I really, I don't like to look at it too long because it's not, it's not great, man. No, it's not. It's <laughs> not pretty rotten spot. I don't understand how we can be, you know, I'm, I'm one of those people that's like, how can I be eating this dinner if I know someone three doors down is starving? There's no way. There's no way. I can't do that. Um, and that's more, 
I don't know. And somehow that ties into the art. I'm not sure how, but it does. It does. Oh my gosh. And you're, you're okay. I know I don't get shy now, but you are incredible. (laughs) (laughs) You're like, girl, you're killing me. (laughs) But really, thank you for that because you just did what you usually sought out. You seek out to do, which is you make people think. That's it. You did exactly that. And I say that you are incredible because of that. I am wondering, because this is something I'm tying into the struggles of what majority of our community have, is the idea of the title of writer. Mm-hmm. You know, just talking with you and just hearing how um, it's just ingrained in you to not be a braggart, to not... You, just there's just so many things I think I feel like you're the best person to talk to about this where what about for the listeners who feel almost very ashamed to even step in the role of calling themselves a writer when people ask them I know it sounds very elementary it's very like a basic question but but it's part of identity right and that's also part of you know we're talking about um making art creating art and self-expression so I, I have I an answer like, for that. There we go. Because I'm like, there's that, right? Okay, so there we go. Yeah. Boom. Okay, so, all right. One of the things that I, because I, again, I wrote eight novels over 15 years. I wrote a lot of poetry in the meantime, too. Mm-hmm. And I, I have 500 plus rejection letters. It was, you know, it was always, you know, you're a girl, you can't be weird. Or, mm. you know, you, or this book sucks, which legit, it did. Um, <laughs> you know, whatever it was, right? Because you have to practice. You have to practice. You have mm-hmm. to love the the art. So A, I'll meet a lot of people that come into it. They're like, I want to be published. I'm like, well, that's fantastic. How much did you write this week? Well, I didn't write it all. Oh, well, then you're going to have a problem with this business. Because if once you get in it, you know what they're going to want? Another book. So you have to love the writing. So as long as they love the writing, you know, you're a writer if you're writing. That's it. I mean, that's it. And I don't mean like, and writing's weird because now we have computers. I mean, I wrote my first novels on typewriters. You know, luckily, luckily and we we take this for granted so much we are educated therefore we know words and we can put we can string them together and make sentences and paragraphs and and books and um if you're doing that then you're a writer um and that is like i i work with students i work with high school students sometimes i just came off of a writer in residence stint at this high school nearby and that was the one thing that always made me kind of, my heart would swell. They'd be like, you make me feel like I am a writer. I'm like, why didn't you think you were a writer? Did you read that poem? You wrote that poem. If you wrote that poem, then you are a poet. That's you. You are writing that. Um, so if you're writing, you're a writer. When I was unpublished for 15 years, did I feel like that? Probably not. No. Um, but it was Wait, my- do you mean you didn't, did you feel like you were a writer or did you feel like you were not a writer? I felt like I wasn't a writer. I right, think. I, okay. I knew I was writing and I was very, well, it's hard to fight for your time too, right? So you're there. I mean, for me, it was easy. I was self-sufficient. So it was sort of, and I had a job at night. I, well, I had a volunteer job at night. Um, I taught adults how to read. So that's where I, I started out in literacy. So, um, uh, but to be able to say, hey, I'm going upstairs for two hours now to get my words in. I've been very fortunate in the fact that my partner has always been um, supportive of that. He's also a big reader, you know, and 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 had that. But um, were there, you know, those times I got all those rejection letters? Were there times I was just like, this is ridiculous. Um, I'll never be a writer versus I'll never be a published writer. Yeah. I mean, but if you're writing, 
you're a writer. If you're painting, you're a painter. Um, if you're running, you're a runner. Like, why wouldn't we connect these things? And it's because with writing, we publication is the is the hurdle. It's the bar, and that is, it's true in some ways. Like, then you can say you're a published writer. Does it make you happier or any better of a writer? No. Yeah, that's true. You know, does it? You know, what makes you better is the practice. Um, so. Um, to those, you know, to the listeners out there, look, if you're writing, you're a writer, like that's it. And, and you're no different than me and you're no different than, than, you know, anybody else you want to name, whether it's Marlon James or whether it's John Updike or whether it's Hemming, I don't care who your, who your hero is. If you're writing, you're a writer. And it's just the, the journey is longer for some people. It's shorter for others. And if publication is going to happen, you need to continue practicing anyway. So it's all good. Um, Thank you. you. Yeah. No, that was, that was perfect. Um, and I think they needed to hear that. Cause I think there's so many times where they try to persuade themselves. This is, the, this is just me like eavesdropping on mm-hmm. comments sure. they put and messages they send to me, whether it's via emails or like on social media, but we have this private Facebook group and it's a very protected space. So they're, they feel very open to share, you know, their biggest struggles. And I notice that a lot of it is like, oh gosh, like I feel like shit because I haven't written for months or, you know, my husband or my wife or my parents don't know that I'm writing and they think it's like a bullshit kind of hobby that won't get you anywhere. So I feel ashamed to call myself a writer and it's just, and like, they yeah. don't want to wear that coat because they go, oh, if I say this to a real writer, I'm putting huge air quotes around that. Mm. If I say this to a real writer, then they're going to say, well, where are you published? I mean, that was the thing. I mean, look, I got to that year 12 or 13 of, you know, I'd come home now and again for, you know, and I, I joke about this. I don't mean it in a bad way. My family's very kind for the most part. Um, <laughs> for the most part. <laughs> into that. Uh, but I'd come to those larger Christmas gatherings or whatever, like holiday gatherings or picnics or something. And they'd say, what are you doing? I'd be like, oh, I'm still writing. Or they'd say, are you still writing? I'd be like, yeah. And then they say, are you published yet? And then you sort of start, oy, oy, oy. then you look around and you don't make eye. And then, then after a while though, they don't ask. And then they just stop making eye contact and they don't ask you anything. And because mm. they don't know what to do with that and they don't understand that you're enjoying yourself writing and actually mm-hmm. it's kind of fun and because it's it, it's a it's it's like it'd be like like are you still in college and didn't get your degree yet you know it's, yeah. it's and if you were in college for 15 years people would be like mm, <laughs> you know oh, about her probably never gonna graduate i don't know what she's doing and that's the thing they're not the same thing and but again we go back to what we've been taught money jobs, Mm -hmm. this, this is, you know, all these things that we've been taught as human beings. And I mean, look, yeah, I got to pay the mortgage, but am I going to pay it with art? Yeah, that's pretty cool. And yeah, I'm proud of that. Sure I am. Um, but, um, when I wasn't paying the mortgage with that, it was more like, well, what do you do for money? And people would ask that and then I would tell them, but, but really, yeah, no, I mean, feeling like a real writer should not involve publication. It should involve because it doesn't change anything. Yeah. I can say it here. And, and winning awards doesn't change anything. I haven't hit the New York Times bestseller list, but I guarantee you from the, my friends who have, it doesn't change anything. No, it doesn't. Um, all that matters is you got to go to your desk and sit down and write. And what, what feels good when you go, oh my God, did I write that sentence? Holy shit, I have to read that sentence back again. And you read the sentence back and I wrote that fucking sentence. I can't mm-hmm. believe it. 
this is amazing. And your mind opens like exponentially because you've just seen your story even bigger than you ever saw it before with this sentence, that's writing. And nobody really ever gets that, like outside of that office in that moment. It's just you. And so you have to appreciate that. And if you don't, well, then I don't know. If you don't, you can still have a career because here I am, you know. Um, but I do appreciate those moments um, uh, very much so. And, and now even more so because I know they're really, that is it. That's being a writer. Oh, I'm going to jump in here and add a little something from my perspective as an outsider of this industry. This whole New York Times seller thing, it's marketed to people like me. I'm like, huh? But then I'll browse through other areas where it's not under New York Times bestseller list. And I'm like, what? Wait, this speaks to me. Don't get me wrong. There are books out there that are on the bestseller list oh, that have, you know, knocked it all, all out of the park. But it's just a shitty bar to hold yourself up. I mean, for anybody who does think like, oh, my dream is just New York Times bestseller. And that is what is going to define me as a quote unquote successful writer. Correct. You know, and I, I just had to add that two cents from someone that's uh, that is marketed to that is a consumer. Well, and, and you use a good word because it is a marketing thing. And that's the thing we have to understand that those it's a game. Um, so for those lists, it's a game. I used to actually always read way back since forever ago. I was trying to catch up on every Booker Prize winner because, um, again, I was over on that side of the Atlantic and and it was cool. And I was reading them and. And I found, you know, many of my favorite books that way. But then sometimes I'd read a Booker winner and say, are you kidding me? The last three quarters of this book are a mess. Like, this, mm. <laughs> nothing's solved. And then mm -hmm. I'd read it again just to make sure it wasn't me. Like, hold on. <laughs> clearly, this has got to be me. Because these Booker winners are fantastic books, usually. And, and But it's the same with any award. Then, of course, then you get to know committee members. And then you go, well, what was that like in the room? And they really argue over which book gets what. And, and the more you know, agreement you can get on one book. So it may, it may be a little more commercial, let's say. It may be a little maybe easier to give the award to because no one's going to uh, argue with them. But then the ones where they get the really argument, you know, the big arguments, those are the ones who just miss it um, because someone's super passionate about it and then there's someone who's super passionate against it. Mm. Um, and so in the end, there is no bar. Isn't that funny? I used to yes. think the awards were, you know, like if I, if I went for the National Book Award or if I read the, you know, the Booker or whatever, winners, and, and in fairness, now I'll, I will say, like, I think the ratio is higher when it comes to the type of books I like to read. And that is completely subjective for all of us. Um, but, um, yeah, I agree. I mean, um, as, as a bestseller is a lovely thing to say, but it's really that's just sales. And when you when you're like, I'm a non-consumerist, I don't that doesn't mean I don't consume things. I do consume things. Um, but I. I I bestseller just means that it sold a lot one mm, week, really, yeah. unless you're up there for more than one. Um, and that's, that's all you got. I want it to make somebody cry. I want to make somebody yep. think about a relationship that they have in a different way. I want them, even if it's with themselves, that's, or with the world, like with dig. I mean, this is, this is really a relationship with the world. I want white, I want, I want, every, I want white people. It's, it's a book about whiteness. And so I want to be, I want, a white person to sit down and go, oh, I never saw it that way before. Because none of us do. Nobody ever knocks on our door at like age seven and says, hey, by the way, you're white. I so wish they would. And that's what I've been doing the last two years. I've been going mm -hmm. to high schools and I've been telling white kids that they're white. And it has been so much fun. No, seriously, <laughs> this has been so much fun because 
obviously, you know, immediately some years close. And that's cool, man. I know where I am, too. I'm in Pennsylvania. I'm in, I'm, you know, I'm in an area where I'm, I know. I grew up there. I get it. So some years are just going to close. And, or they're going to cock their heads at you like, well, what's so wrong with being white? And I'm like, oh, there's nothing wrong with being white. You can't do anything about it. Like, go ahead, try. Um, but you should perhaps think about what it means. And what does it really mean? What does it mean being white in America now? Um, and that's been really so much fun. How are you able to explain privilege to them? Because I, I think there's something about being a white person explaining white privilege to another white person. And I feel like we need, you guys are the strongest allies in that way, because no matter what, even if I have friends who are white and I love them dearly and they love me dearly, I can't even make them understand what privilege means. Right. I hear sometimes, Oh, you're just being negative Uh or like, Oh, don't worry. You didn't get that role. It's just not meant to be. Okay, but if it's like ethnic people that are now getting the roles, suddenly it's a reversal where I hear some people saying, well, they should have just told me if they didn't want a white person. Okay, then how do you know, like, how did we feel for how so long? But how do you explain? I'm, I really want to know because I don't want to break friendships in my life. And I'm trying to learn. I'm trying to get the point through. Right. Um, and not seem like some angry, whatever you've been labeled up till now to simply just get someone to listen to you. Yeah. I, I don't know. I don't know if I'm the expert on this. There's definitely more people who know how to speak to people. But for me, I go straight for the honesty. And so, and I'm talking, well, I'm talking to a lot of younger people. Oh, I had a, <laughs> had an experience. It was kind of sad. I was in this town that I go to a lot, a city that I go to a lot. And, and I was at a librarian dinner, school librarian dinner. And I was put in the, um, at like the city school table. So all these people around me at this table were city librarians. And one of them was, well, she was older. I don't know what that means anymore. Cause when I was young, I was old. So <laughs> I don't even get it, but she was older than me. That's all we'll say. She's probably in her, maybe in her sixties. And I said something, I said, you know, they were like, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm actually going around telling white kids they're white. And this one kind of got really serious. She was a white woman, got real serious. And she looked at me and she goes, are you talking about white privilege? And I said, yes. And she said, I've heard that idea before and it makes me uncomfortable. And I said, yeah. And I said, it should, it should make you feel uncomfortable. Um, And, and she said, I don't believe in any of that. And she said, I was so bummed because I know she's working with urban kids and I'm just like, and my husband teaches, you know, teaches urban ed. So it's sort of like, you know, oh, that's not the attitude you want in that school, you know, Mm -hmm. like open your mind. But how do I describe it? I describe it, uh, you know, I'm, I go very elementary, like um, oftentimes there's almost all the time there's students of color in the same room. Um, And I never really want, I guess that's the balance because I'm talking to a large group. So I never want to single out the students of color either and make them feel really uncomfortable while I'm telling their white classmates that they're white. But I, 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 I just explained, I actually, I use my own personal experience. I say things like, look, I grew up on James Brown and Stevie Wonder and bebop jazz and eventually roots reggae. And, um, and I actually disconnected from white people thinking that I wasn't as white as the other white people. And that is a, that is a complete falsehood. It's a complete lie. And what it did was it allowed me to go through life, not being a real ally instead, just pretending I was somebody I wasn't. And, and it just, it disconnected me completely. Um, and so now I, like, I have to look at the white people who, who gross me out. Okay. And go, yep, those are my people. There are people out there who are white, who are, you know, burning crosses, let's say that's a common enough thing up where I came from. And, um, and I have to look at them and not go, oh, they're just stupid or, oh, I can't just blow them off. 
because these kids, because again, I'm working with younger people. So when I'm working with younger people, I'm trying to get them to think so that they don't end up around that cross, you know, and so that, or maybe they will because of what I've said to them. Maybe it'll copper fasten it for them. And it'll be like, yeah, no, this, this bitch is crazy. Um, you know, I, I hate all other races. And if that's where they're at, I can't do much for them. But when it comes to privilege, I don't know, like, I don't know. I don't know how to explain it other than, you know, we live in a white supremacy. And I think that's the one thing white people really don't get because we've, the extremism has been a distraction. So that's kind of my personal experience was like, look, I grew up around skinheads. I grew up around people who were in the Klan. Luckily, I grew up in a little, wonderful little uh, household where none of that was condoned. In fact, it was spoke, you know, we talked about it openly. We talked about being anti-racist, all of those things. Um, but I didn't know how to do that. I just, but, um, but what the, the sad part was, is then that I saw racist was then you had to be wearing a robe or you had to be wearing, you know, you know, a bald head and, and, and swastika tattoos. That was a racist. And in actual fact, we must realize that if, if as white people, if we, <laughs> we're going, we're living in a white world built for white people. And if, I don't know how, I, yeah, I'm failing miserably, but if there's a way to, to really get a white person to see, well, what do you think the banks, the, the banks, who were they built for? Well, well, look at the city. What was the city built for? What about that Southeast part of the city where let's see um, all of the low income housing on also the prison and also the shittiest schools. What area do you think that was, was, it, was that built for white people? Oh, well, that's not their fault. Oh, really? Well, who designed the town? The white people. Interesting. Okay, let's go back in history. Let's talk about the Civil War. Let's talk about Jim Crow. Let's talk about poverty and mass incarceration. And, you know, and I start throwing out these words and usually I overwhelm people, but mostly I just use personal stories. And I talk about, look, I got a lump in my head from a skinhead. Um, and, you know, yes, uh, you know, I got kicked around by this guy. Yeah. And it was because I was wearing a Bob Marley t-shirt. Wow. All it took. Yeah. But I got a lot of shit for that. But the funny thing is when I lived in Philly and I was wearing a Bob Marley t-shirt, I got shit for, I got shit from African-American people too. They'd be like, why are you wearing a Bob Marley t-shirt? I'd be like, damn it. Because oh, <laughs> I, I love him. And he's again, human condition artist, you know, but how to explain it? I don't know. I know that with male privilege, I mean, I've been married a long time to a smart dude who to this day, like only yesterday, he finished at least 20 of my sentences. And I, but what I've been doing is pointing it out each time and then looking at him going, yeah, no, that's not what I was going to say. Mm. But I'm thrilled that you thought that you knew what I was going to say, but you're out of your mind. Could you please let me finish my sentence? I love you dearly, but you're driving me crazy. And he started to understand the privilege there, the privilege. In, and this is, this is, if we take it into male privilege for me, it's this idea that in our heads, we have the characters that we're living with. So there we are, we have our friends. And let's say we have a few friends who are white and we have a few friends who are black, a few friends who are Asian, a few uh, friends who are immigrants who are from wherever, you know? Um, and and we, we have ideas of them in our heads. How many of us actually listen to our friends in that group? And see them for who they are versus the character we've created in our heads, right? Yes. This is why my husband thinks he can finish my sentences. And this is why men out there in the world who aren't even married to me and who don't know me try and finish my sentences. I had a banker do it the other day. I'm like, you don't even know me. Oh, my God. Let me finish my sentence. I didn't say that. I just smiled until he told me what he thought I was thinking because Amy in his head was going to say this because he thinks I'm like all the other women who sat in front of him in an actual fact. 
I let him finish my sentence. And I'm like, actually, what I was going to say is this. So I woman explained to him because I started the sentence with actually, which is always satisfying. <laughs> but did he listen? And then what did he do? He looked straight at my husband. So, wow. Right? And I, I mean, I have two doctors. I take my husband to those doctors. So they talk to me. I mean, to this day, like, it's just how it goes. I'm like, look, this doctor didn't listen to me the first time. And he said some stupid shit. So you're going to come with me this time. He's like, what do you want me to do? I'm like, just sit there. And then they start talking. And I'm sitting there going, mm-hmm, this is great. What a great conversation, guys. And wow. then I kind of look at my husband and he's like, oh, shit. And then I get to say something. And then my doctor talks to me like I'm actually in the room. <clears throat> and that's continuing to happen. And so that is no different. Now I'll switch it back over to white privilege. <laughs> same, same deal. But the idea that we're living in a white supremacy and that the entire that this America was, was built for white people, you know, and, and that we're totally purposely miseducated about everything from how we got this land to, um, to how we got rich off of racism. How we got rich off of this land. We got rich off this land because slavery, that's the only, like we, got rich off the whole thing. Um, you know, we, we don't teach that. We teach it from a white perspective. You know, the victors, woo So for me, I don't know. I, I just tried for what, I think that was like a blob of maybe a seven to 10 minute rant. I have no idea how to explain white privilege other than I just look at people and say, yes, I've never had anyone argue. Usually because when I speak, I look angry. It's so funny, <laughs> right? <laughs> I just learned I learned this a few years ago because I was talking into a camera. My publicist was behind the camera. I was at ALA, and I was talking about being a uh, being a library advocate, being a library board member, and and learning, you know, about what how libraries really work. And I'm so passionate about it that I look like I'm yelling at you, and I and my eyebrows are down. And so she's behind the camera, making these smile, smile, smile face, you know, like yeah. doing those motions with her hands. And I'm like, oh shit, I always look angry. So I think, the, the, you know, I don't get much pushback on the white privilege thing because I look like I'm yelling at you, um, <laughs> but you can't see that now. But that's part of it. I have a horrible um, active bitch face. It's horrible. It's so active. It's just there. And it's just because I love you and I care about you. And if I love you and care about you, I, for some reason, am yelling at you about some stupid shit you believe. Like if you really believe that the world, you know, is, is fair to everybody, then, you know, mind you, though, I'll be the first person if somebody says to me, well, this is my first novel and I didn't get it published because it's because I'm not white. I'd be like, hold on, stop. That's your first novel. You need to probably write a few more. I'm not trying to tell you it's because you're whatever, not white, we'll say mm. whatever, you know, because, you know, I'll have that with women. Oh, this is my first novel. They wouldn't take it because I'm a woman. Well, no, you need to write a few. You need to practice. You need to get good at this. Mm. Um you know, it does take a while. Same as act. I don't know how you act. I can't, I couldn't do that. A million years. I could do that in a million years, but I bet you if I practiced and someone taught me how to do it, I'd be okay at it in the first while. <laughs> I think you'd be an incredible theater actress. <laughs> Except I have massive stage fright. Unless I'm doing, unless I'm speaking about writing, unless I'm speaking about stuff I give a shit about, uh, I'm massive stage fright. Can't do it. I can sing really well. I'd never sing on stage. Wow. Weird, right? But anyway. But so I, I get it. That's I think that's kind of part of what we talked about way earlier at the top of yeah, the show. True. Right? But I think there's a little bit yeah, of that. Yeah, it is. Uh, so I wish I, I'm, I feel failed now that I didn't answer your white privilege question. It's hard to answer these questions, which is why I'm asking, because I don't even have an answer and I'm not even white. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I'm trying to understand for myself, hence why there is no this is the answer kind of answer. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just more so 
how are we framing these conversations? Because I would love to borrow some from how you're saying it. I would love to borrow because I already like just from what you shared, I'm like, oh, I have a few things I I could borrow and tell my friends, you know? And you're right. Like you said, there, the one thing that really stood out to me and everything stood out to me, but the part that really resonated with me where you grew up seeing what was like, you know, most of us grew up seeing what's extremist. So it's so easy to put a label on it. But those people who don't realize they're being, you know, there's microaggression going on as well. And, <laughs> and you know, there's white friends who are like, well, I have black and Asian friends, so I'm not racist. I'm like, no, it doesn't work that way. And then I hear, okay, that's not racist. Actually, you're getting the term wrong. It's called ignorance. And I'm like, (laughs) okay, so here I am getting explained to. So then for me, I'm trying to learn from basically anyone who's putting in any effort to try and make Mm. a difference and move us forward as people, as humans, you know, and you are one of them. You are one of the people you're going around, even if you don't have like, you think that you don't have the 100% perfect answer. Mm. You're doing what you can to then share from your own experiences from like, you're saying like, you know, once you get into all the facts, sometimes, you know, they look at you like wide eyes, like, uh, and kind of lose them. But then you share your experiences like Bob Marley, the t-shirt and you getting, you having a scar in your head from that. Like that's so Mm. fucked up, but it just shows to them like, oh my God, this is a white woman saying this, like a white person saying this. And it, it shakes them or like, what if that person wasn't white? What if that was a black person? What would they have done to that person? You know, like, I think that's, 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 that's it right there where it's just like, I'm so glad you are doing that work. And then for me, it doesn't matter about like what, like, I think the answer is more so how to frame conversations. And I think you're doing a beautiful job because you have such powerful examples real life examples that you can share it's the real life stuff it and is I think that's, what, that's what i've always and it, it, it comes to my books too because almost there's always real life stuff in my books like i've had to apologize for my mother to my mother I'm like oh mom she made me pineapple stuffing for one of the for this for christmas she brought it and i'm like oh gosh mom you know there's a whole thing in this book about pineapple stuffing you are not the woman i'm talking about you just have to know and you'll know when you read her and she's like, oh, Amy, you don't think we're used to this by now? Because there's little bits and pieces of me in everything. Yes. Um, I do want to get into Dig, by the way, because let's I, do it. Let's you were talking, let's dig into Dig, because I know that you were mentioning that you were in, you were self sufficient in Ireland for 15 years. I'm like, whoa. So I'm, yeah. I'm, yeah, I was in Ireland 15, self, yeah, yeah, on the farm for about 10. Yeah. That's incredible. Um, cool. Were you, was that, like where you first got your inspiration because this story has a lot to do with, I mean, <laughs> yes, buds, you know what I mean? Like, I know it's such a silly, no. like, I'm like, uh, but no. I mean, well, <sighs> how about this? Why don't we, before we get into it, like just so the audience can get familiar because your, your book is coming out March 26th. So mm. we're timing the release right around then. So can you give them like a blurb of what they could expect from dig? Yeah. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to cheat and I'm going to read the back. Okay. That's the perfect. It's sitting in front of me. So, <laughs> okay. um, All right, so this says, it's like the big type says, The Shoveler, The Freak, Can I Help You, Flea Circus, Loretta, and First Class Malcolm. Dig is the story of five teenagers buried in their family's tangled secrets. Only a generation removed from being Pennsylvania potato farmers, Gottfried and Marla Hemmings managed to trade digging spuds for developing subdivisions. And now they've got a McMansion and $10 million in the bank, both of which they've declined to pass on to their adult children or their grandchildren. Because we want them to thrive, Marla always says, even when thriving looks like total estrangement from half her family. 
As the poison at the root of the family's white suburban respectability spreads, the far-flung grandchildren find their ways back to one another just in time to uncover the terrible cost of maintaining the family name, and they must decide whether they'll continue paying or start digging. So it's kind of a metaphor. Yeah. <laughs> but it's, it is a, it's a multi-generational story. It's three generations. Um, so we're looking at, you know, boomer, uh, grandparent type age. Um, and then Generation X, that's me, losers. Um, <laughs> still losers. We're still losing. I don't know what else to say, but I don't care anymore. It's like, oh, Newsweek lied. Um, and so uh, um, Generation X parents and then like teenage, you know, teenagers now. Um, and it really explores, it's really more about, it's funny. It's about, yeah, it's about white, it's about race. It's about white, it's about white, um, white privilege, about whiteness. It's about where it came from. Um, but it's also really about love um, and how um, so many of us put money before love in our families and we put other things before love. Um, a, a lot of it, I, I, uh, there's a line from a Kate Tempest song slash poem whichever way you want to whichever way you want to ingest Kate Tempest if you haven't yet please do just start ingesting her um she's unbelievable but there's a line that says um and I'm screaming at my loved ones to wake up and love more mm. um and it's it's a that that you know I listened to that album pretty much nonstop. it's like a trance album when I was writing this book or a chunk of it anyway um so it's about all those things it's about kind of how we relate as family how we're falling apart really how we're falling apart, how caring about money more than everything else really just, it just is we're falling apart, I think. And I, and I think as white people, I guess, if I look at it this way, I, I always wanted to know, where does this shit come from? I don't understand it. I don't understand why that dude thought, like at that age, the guy who dropped me on my head, he must've been probably at the most 20 years of age. He had a, a tattoo on the inside of his lip that said skin. I wrote about him actually in a book years ago as well. And actually that particular um, whatever you want to call that beating slash whatever he did. Um, and, and I think to myself, what happened to this poor young man that made him so full of hatred? It makes no sense. I always wanted to get back to it. Where does it come from? And um, where does the non-extreme racism come from? Because that's the most common. That's the one that, yeah. that's, that's what, that's what's here. When people said, oh my gosh, 57% of white women voted for Trump. You think I was shocked? I wasn't shocked. Um, it made me go, yeah, of course they did. I know them. I live in a religious Christian conservative town. Don't ask me why. It's a long story. Um, <laughs> I would so not be living here, but I, it's cute. It's nice. And I can walk to the shops and that's great. But like, it didn't shock me at all. And, and then when I wrote this book, you know, it, it, without a spoiler, you know, I realized only after I, I was on like my, one of my last revisions, I realized how it really came down to that right there, white women, white men too, but white women, women, as much as men control women, women control men in a way. Men have to think and act in a certain way. They're scared to death of us and they mm -hmm. should be because we birth shit and there is nothing scarier than birthing shit. And we speak our minds, holy shit, that's scary. And we have opinions, we have all these things and, and men have been terrified of this for years um but we also oftentimes are the ones raising the kids especially the talking to the kids and so when i think about well if if this many people voted for this guy then why would you be surprised if 57 percent of white women did that it makes complete sense to me i don't plot 
So all I knew is I wanted to write about whiteness, and I started the book out with this kid who was shoveling snow because uh, we recently had a blizzard and I had been shoveling snow. And then it just kept growing from there. Why spuds? I'm so curious. So, okay, I have a thing about the Irish famine. People are really poorly educated on the famine because usually... Do you have uh, Irish roots yourself? No, no, my husband's Irish. Um, oh, okay. Uh, yeah. And so I have citizenship. We all do. Because, uh, of course, we do. Um, but um, no, I have not a drop of Irish anything in me. Um, but once I moved there and started to understand Irish history, because it's very hard. All you ever heard here during the Troubles, you only ever heard IRA. That's all you ever heard. Um, but when you went over there and you understood that there were terrorists on both sides, um, that really opened my eyes to going, wow, American news is, is well, it's limited. So when I first started to learn about um, Irish history and really got into the, like the Cromwell and all that, my first published book actually uh, is a lot about Cromwell and, and the genocide um, in the mid 1600s. Um, but then we bought this, this farm out in Tipperary and it had been, I mean, the 1888 evictions. I mean, people don't know about this stuff because you're not from Ireland. Like, so the more I learned about Irish history, I, the more I understood what, um, what they'd been through and what they were fighting for when it came to, you know, this terrorism that was happening. Now, do I believe in terrorism? Hell no. Do, you know, but when I was there, did I vote Sinn Féin? Hell yes. And there'll be some listeners who know exactly what I just said and some won't. And that's fine. Um, anyway, spuds. So one of my biggest issues is I have a good few, um, but a big one is that people believe the Irish famine, like you hear, oh, the famine. Yeah, that's the, that's because the blight and the blight killed the Irish people. And the, the, no, it didn't. That, fa that blight hit 2000 miles from Ireland all the way to Prussia. We had just gotten potatoes. So um, in Europe at that point, um, about a hundred years before, um, actually that's a complete lie, about 300 years before, but that particular blight hit 2,000 miles, a stretch, 2,000 miles long. But the Irish were the only one, ones who lost at that level because they were being ruled by an English army who wouldn't allow them any of the food that they were harvesting that weren't potatoes. They were sending that to England. And also the English army horses ate real well while those Irish people starved. It was a genocide again. It's not new for the Irish people. They've actually been one of the coolest things I ever read was a dude named Russell Means. He was the head of the American Indian movement for a while. Um, and um, they were interviewing him. And the interviewer in the very opening paragraph said something like, you're the most, um, how do you say it? You're the most, um, oh, what was the word, invaded or the worst treated or the longest invaded or I can't, I'm, I'm not using the right word. Anyway, he had said, you know, you guys have it the worst, basically. And Russell Beans turned around and said, no, we've only been dealing with this for 500 years. The Irish have been dealing with it for 800. And I found, I actually showed that to my husband and he cried because so many people don't know about that struggle. Now, to mind all that, because Irish people, you know, they may struggle, but they're white. And over here now, they're like, you know, if you're Irish, you're like famous. So that's cool. Anyway. But the Irish, uh, so, so no, it had nothing to do with the Irish thing. And a lot of people take potatoes and think they're, you know, oh, the Irish. No, everybody. I mean, the history of the potato is flipping fascinating. And it's so fascinating. And it's actually the reason for the white supremacy. Because if we hadn't have, so the potato came over. I'm going to have like vague stuff here because my brain is now filling up with the next book's research. And so some of the potato research has come out my ear. But um, potato came over from the Andes 
around the 1500s, and it was brought back, and it was a gross potato. These were all different types. Potatoes are kind of cool, different different altitudes. You can grow different plants, right? So they grabbed a bunch of those, brought them over to Europe, um, actually to the Canaries first, but then after that to the to Europe, and they were growing them, and they were really gross. They're not like what we eat now. They're hard, um, hard to cook, pretty ugly. Um, and they could not get the pet, like in France, this is one of my favorite stories, Louis XIV, um, Marie Antoinette, like they were trying to get the French peasants and uh, laborers to eat potatoes um, because then they'd have, well, healthier <laughs> peasants and laborers. And that's awesome. But they wouldn't eat them. They were like, screw you. We don't want these things. They taste like shit. And um, it eventually took Louis XIV. Uh, what he did was he planted, I can't remember, was it 20 or 40 acres? So we'll just minimize it and say it was 20. But he planted 20 acres of potatoes out like on the palace grounds and had those pota- that potato crop guarded on every side until midnight. And then he'd take the guards off. And that was how he got the laborers and the peasants interested in potatoes, because they reckoned, well, if he has them guarded, they must be important. And now the guards are gone. We're going to lift some of these. And that's how they got into eating the potatoes, because at the time, potatoes kind of sucked. But um, what we have to understand, and I'll use Ireland as a as a it's kind of an extreme example in the 100 years between when the potato was introduced as a food and it is the most nutritious per square inch. That is the most nutritious plant you can you can plant. Okay, so from the hundred years from when the Irish started eating potatoes to the famine, actually, um, uh, that's a lie too. Sorry about that. That was misinformation. But just in the first hundred years, all right, they almost tripled their population. Now think about that. They went from three million to eight million. Okay, that's a lot of people. Europe was having the same thing, though, okay? So in Europe, there we are, the white people. Before then, we had famines all over the place. White people could not get their shit together. We were, you know, we were doing some stuff. Like, it was cool. We were, like, doing stuff. But we were dying all the time um, from famine. Those of us, which was, you know, most people who were laboring or, or, you know, working, their lives were controlled by the price of bread, which, of course, was controlled by the people who had way more bread than they did. Um, And so, but famine was so common. It was massive common, like, all the time. Um, whether it was England, whether it was small, you know, small little things or larger famines, they were very common. So there were people dropping dead all the time from from famine and from from illness. And it was the potato that doubled, doubled our population um, over 100 years. Um, and that's now a wide when it comes to white Western Europeans, um, doubled our population and made us very, very strong. Um, and at that point, then we could suddenly like imperialism showed up. We're like, hell yeah, let's do this. You know, we're strong. We've got loads of people and let's do it. Um, so to me, when I read about the history of the potato, um, and read other people who'd already made these connections, I mean, I did not make this connection first. Uh, there were, there were plenty of people before me. Um, Michael Pollan, uh, um, has a wonderful book that I'm, spacing the name on right now, but it's upstairs on my desk. It'll come to me. Anyway, he, um, you know, he made that connection too. Uh, so that's where potatoes came into it. And I'm not sure how, like the first chapters were written. And for some messed up reason, this kid and his mom, like she made potatoes all the time. It's constant potatoes, potato croquettes, potato this. I remember I still have a link on my bookmarks to the Wikipedia page for all the dishes of potatoes. Although it doesn't include pierogies, which I think is insane because pierogies are damn good. I and, was going to say, I freaking yeah. love those pierogies. They're so damn good. <laughs> They're so good. I'm like, where the, where the pierogies? Like, 
this should be this is a list of like the most ridiculous things like there's even like a they call it a i think it's called a bunty sandwich or something like that but it's like a it's a uh, what is it a chip bunty a chip bunty chip buddy that's it that's a that's that's it's gross um it's but it's a classic irish sort of like like snack food where you just no, i shouldn't say classic i, I don't know my friends had it would, would do it they just stick a load of french fries or chips right into like buttered white bread man just eat it it's like a, it's a it's a fry sandwich, it's a chip sandwich. So it's, I don't know people that do it with potato chips as well. So, um, but hold on, I lost my, oh, so I, I have this list. And, and so for some reason, everybody in this book was like kind of obsessed with potatoes before I was. And then I started reading the history of potatoes. So it's weird. Like I don't go into a book with all that knowledge. I go in and go, what the hell is this about? And then I go, I guess I better read about potatoes. And then I read about potatoes and then I get obsessed like sick, obsessed, like textbooks, every article I can find, every, everything. And I did grow a lot of potatoes when I was in Ireland. People would always say, oh gosh, what if you got the blight? I look at them like, we got the blight every year. You spray with copper sulfate, it's organic. And you know, the blight, it comes along, it's in the soil. It's always going to be there. Um, and people don't understand it because they heard about the Irish famine and they have this idea that potato plants are perfect unless they get the blight. It's like, no, the blight's in the soil already. Um, but yeah, so so that's where the potatoes came in. And it's funny because they ended up being a small part of the book and little, and yet they started out as a large part of the book just because the family's obsessed with them. And then I realized, of course, that they came from potato farmers. Um, and I researched that around here. Yeah, we have some, we had some families around here that had like potato farms that were, yeah, 200 years old, like 600 acres, like insane. Uh, so, so do you mind me jumping in and asking, because this, this is so, so I'm like learning so much, first of all. So thank you, um, teacher. I, you are my Yoda. Um, <laughs> I, I'm so curious because this is so much work. Like you said, you had no, you, you didn't, know that much about potatoes before until these these characters were calling to you and then you went into this rabbit hole of research so i'm assuming you said it was a lot of freaking research how how long are we talking about like it was over a span of how long well this book took a long time this book was about four years in the making it's way long for me yeah but it's also nine points of view or nine you know it's it's, it's got a lot of stuff in it that way but some of it's really easy and i didn't have to research at all because it's based on real people i knew um or based on real people who you know um who a bunch of us knew and i don't know it's it's hard to explain but uh when it comes to those rabbit holes i mean i'll tell you right now i'm in the middle of a i haven't even I would say I started the book, but that would be a lie because I'm going to restart it. So I haven't technically in my world, I haven't started writing the book yet, but I've been obsessed with this one psychologist from the sixties and seventies uh, and eighties. Um, and his, he has this one concept and I, the minute, and, and he was, he was pushed against, um, during most of his time as a psychologist and he decided, well, screw you. And he invented this sort of whole idea about how to look at emotions um, and then wrote textbooks and wrote curricula for his own college courses so that psych majors could take his classes and he had to invent all this himself. And so I've been reading his text textbooks. So I mean, how deep that deep um, and, and most of it, a lot of it won't ever come out. I wrote a book called Gloria O'Brien's history of the future. And for that, I researched Jim Jones and Jonestown. So I must've read maybe eight books, watched this many different uh, documentaries and things like that about Jim Jones and not one mention of Jim Jones went into that book. <laughs> so sometimes the rabbit holes don't yield things like, but sometimes they do. Um, but yeah, I mean, how long, you know, when I'm bored, I would sit there and say, 
I would Google the craziest things, like potatoes are the reason for the white supremacy, and see, <laughs> see what came up. Um, you know, potatoes in the population of Western Europe in the 18th century, let's say, or whatever. Um, but it's it's never like you know sitting at the library researching the way I was told that research is. It's usually sitting on my couch or on a train somewhere or something. So you said that four years of working on DIG is, yeah. is actually, you mentioned, is kind of long for your your own it timeline. Because I know others, it might be their norm, but for yeah. yours, uh, compared to your past books, because you wrote a lot of books, because Gloria O'Brien's History of the Future, that was 2014, was it? I, yeah, it was. Actually. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, nor- and I, re- I noticed that you had like a book coming out every year consistently. It did. It's, it did. it's nuts. I'm like, shit. Like, I, God, I, I, wish like I, I wish I could write a newsletter once a month. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> I mean, the thing is, you're, you're working and that's kind of your natural flow. So four years is generally for you is a little bit slower. So in that case, was there something that was particularly challenging for you that made you take a little bit longer than your usual timeline? I'm always very curious about these little more like technical things. Yeah. Well, again, like, and every writer is different. So for me being, I'm a total pantser. Like I don't, I, which means I'm not, I don't plot. So what would happen was, you know, a character would lead me to a place, um, and I would not have any idea where the hell it was going next. Um, I say you can tack a year and a half onto this book just because of personal things here at home. Just just generally life um, got in the way. I, per, I would prefer to have my books come out every two years. But during those 10 years, it was like, no, you have to have a book come out every year. And I needed the money. I need to mm-hmm. feed my people. Um, so um, and, and luckily, the ideas, I can't say were coming fast enough, but I'd always have a book started. But with this one. Well, look, I started the book, uh, the kid's shoveling. Great. He's shoveling. Great. He's shoveling. He's thinking he's got a, he's got some issues. He doesn't know whose dad is. And he's got this, he's, it's crippling him as a human being in every way. And, and, uh, he's thinking about that and that's great until you get to 80 pages and you're like, what the hell is going on here? This is the most boring shit I've ever read. How can you have a kid shoveling for 80 pages and thinking about his dad? He's, he's just going to look like an idiot. And, and, and so I threw him away. I threw him away. I was like, okay, he's not telling me anything. I, I, I expected him to tell me something by at least page 50. He told me nothing. Screw him. So then I, I invented this other character and she is, you know, she's got this racist mom and, and, um, the freak and the, uh, actually knows this. Can I help you? And so I invite, I invent and the freak actually showed up while I was writing the shoveler part. So I, oh, okay, gotcha. there too. so she was cool, but I didn't know what she was doing either. She was like, I was willing to throw her out with the bathwater. I was like, yes, hey, the freak is the one with the dad. Who's like really shitty and like not there. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yeah, he's pretty shitty. All right. And, um, but we never get to meet him technically. We only ever hear about him. So, you know, but, um, yeah. So then can I help you start? So she's like doing her thing. And of course she works at the Arby's drive through And of course I worked at the Arby's drive through once. So I'm like, I'm able to pull from those experiences. Um, and so then she's walking in the park one day uh, with a friend and there's this kid in the park and he's got a snow shovel, but it's April or something. And there's no fucking snow in the ground. Oh, I should say there's no snow in the ground. And, um, and the kid is still shoveling. And I'm like, Oh my God, that's a, that's an AS King book. I got to get that shoveling kid back. I got to get the shoveling kid back and figure out what he's doing now. Cause now I know that, okay, yeah, sure. He was shoveling real snow back in, you know, January, February in, in his part of the book, but now there's no snow and he's in the park shoveling. He needs to come back. And that's kind of how I work. I mean, that sounds crazy to you. I know, but like, then I brought him back and I was like, okay. And then the freak had the freak showed up in her part too. And I'm like, Oh, cool. These go together. Um, 
you know, and that's, you know, that's kind of how it works. But I think most of the reason it took me so long were, were massive distractions in my personal life and, and burnout. Uh, if there is such a thing, I mean, I still love my job. So burnout, you know, I don't mean it in that way. I just mean, dude, I had, I, and I'd written my first middle grade book, I think in, in there, in there somewhere as well. I just had a lot of deadlines and, and travel. I mean, don't forget, like, I still can't, I, mean, I, I definitely write books because I love writing books, but I love writing books because I get to talk to young people, whether they're here or whether they're in Australia or New Zealand. Like I, what a, what a privilege to be sent around the place to be talking to kids and getting paid for it. Um, and so a lot of it comes down to money. A lot of it comes down to, cause I'm not paid that big money. I'm paid, I'm paid respectable money. It's nice. It gets me through, but like right now I'm contracted for a book because last year I'm like, how am I going to eat? Mm. So I said, here's an idea. Can I write it for you? And and that's how I ate at the end of last year. And that's, that's how I have to, that's how I have to live. So when you're, when you're juggling that many things in order to eat your book, your work slows down. Wow. Okay. That's some real artistry talk right there. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, was there a character that you felt the most complicated and the most, in a way that slowed you down. I mean, I know you said the the, sh- the boy who kept shoveling. He yeah. was like eighty pages long. But was right. there anything like the freak? Yeah, yeah. No, it was the freak. Okay, down. and why and is that? Because the freak didn't tell me her secret until page three fifty. So I was continuing to write the book. The, the book is in three major parts. One's introduction, one's the blender, and one's the strainer. And I was well past the blender. I was already in the strainer. And that's when I found out what was happening with the freak. And I was like, oh, shit. Mm. Okay. And, um, you know, we can't give spoilers here. But, you know, then I had to start back in the beginning and really make sure that all that fit what I had just learned about the mm-hmm. freak. This happens to me in my books a lot, but never to this degree. Like 350, like this is like two and a half years in. Um and, you know, just like now she's the hardest one for me to look at. Um, well, for a bunch of different reasons, which, again, would be a little too spoilery. But, yeah, she she gave me the most trouble because I couldn't. But she was also the most fun to write. And that's funny. Most fun to write. Like I was because so every chapter is all caps with exclamation points. I mean, and it was so much fun to read that in the studio when I was doing the audio. It was just mm-hmm. like, you know, um, what is it? The freak hates, I, you know, your idea of a party. And I got to just say it like there was an exclamation point on it. And it was cool. But yeah, uh, she was, she was, she was tough. Um, she was tough for a bunch of reasons. All right. And she's, she's tough for me now. Uh, just again, personal stuff, you know, it's gone on, but I loved her the most. Weird, right? No, that kind of makes sense. I think overall in life yeah. kind of usually happens. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I think it happens that way usually. Do you mind me asking, because this community is a majority, I'm not sure if you're aware, but the community, a majority of them, yes, they're all readers, but a majority of them are also um, beginner writers. And a lot of them have trouble with first drafts and with um, trying to get the first draft revised and not sure how to bring it to the next draft. And let's say they run into, because I've heard several of them talking about characters that just drive them around and around and around, almost like in circles. And they just can't figure out what the character's doing. Do they need to cut them out? Do they, do they dive further? Do they, I mean, for yours, it's 350 pages in, that's already two and a half years in as well for you. So is this 
and I think it also helps knowing that you have a teaching background as well. Like you, you, you know how to deal with students. So what is something that you can share, you know, even if you pull out examples from dig or even like, mm. I know you already shared with the freak, you just had to keep writing her. You had to keep writing her. And then it wasn't till 350 pages in that's when you had to backtrack and like make sure it made sense from the beginning of the book. Are there other avenues as well? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, look, I'm a, I'm a real believer in a shitty first draft. Get it out of your brain. And in that first draft, there's going to be a lot of fat. There's going to be a lot of fat to cut. There's going to be a lot of stuff that doesn't belong in there. Um, um, and there's going to be characters, especially, I'm glad you mentioned the teacher thing, because I just got a letter from a student this morning that said, oh, I cut these two out, and I don't sound like a history teacher anymore. I'm like, oh, thank God. Because she was writing this great story about about you know it doesn't matter what she was writing the story about but but what she had done was she she started to pour other she got so excited she poured all these other ca- like characters from Civil War times in there but they didn't belong in the story it, the story was already populated with exactly who it needed to be populated with and that's a hell of a thing to say coming you know because we're talking about a book with nine characters in it but. Um, you know, sure, I could have taken, say, the brothers out of there. I could have taken Bill and Jake out of there, but then they ended up finding their place. Um, but revision is everything. I had an editor who used to write to me, and she she would write these long editorial letters. And it wasn't because every sentence was a new problem. It was because she was so good at trying to explain it. She was like, well, she had that thing where she's like, it was like new math. You had to learn it six different ways, right? So she would say it six different ways. And then she would apologize. Oh my gosh, was it 15 pages? Or I actually wrote back to her once. I'm like, I see what you're doing there. You, you made this a 10 font. You put this down to 10 point font. And this would have been a 19 page letter. I see what you're doing. And then she's all apologetic. And I had to say to her, dude, no revision is the sport. I'm a former jock that, and I'm not a very competitive person, but when I'm competing against a book that I wrote that I want to make better, you know, that's everything. So, okay. So tips, I do a thing called the holy shit chainsaw revision. So after I'm done, I finish my first draft. Usually I have to do a few drafts to catch up on those little surprises. Like the freak handed me at page 350. So there'll be a little surprises. Like if suddenly my character really loves the color orange on page 200, I'll mark it. I have a notes file and I'll just say, Hey, as of page 200, you know, <laughs> Yin really loves orange. Um, so remember that. So then I'll, I'll do that first revision where I I, I pull everything back to the beginning and I make sure that, that, that there's mention of orange, let's say, you know, throughout those sorts of catch up things. Um, and you know what? A lot of times I honestly, I believe you got to trust your gut. If a red flag goes up every time that you, you know, you decide to put every time this character speaks or when, or when this motif reappears and a red flag is going, it's not really working. Copy or, or what do you call it? Highlight it and make it red. That's what I do in my manuscripts. I highlight it and make it red, or I put a big fat note on there, um, um, a track change note. Um, because if it if it put a red flag up there, you're probably right. At least whether you need to rewrite it, remove it, or rethink it. Um, but for me, then after those first few kind of comma revisions, where the book's starting to make sense, and that uncle so and so, we knew he didn't belong there, so we pulled him out on that one, you know. And, and that feels like a, a celebration. Oh, thank God, I got rid of a character. But there could be a major one that doesn't belong in there too. Um, and so, and that that major one might be is definitely throwing up red flags every time you read it. Um, and Gloria O'Brien's History of the Future was actually supposed to have three main characters and did on my first draft. And you wouldn't see mention of this character anywhere now in the book. Um, 
But then I do what I call a holy shit change law revision. And this is this is always my fun one because I'm mathematical by nature. Um, and so I try and cut 20% of the book and I do it on every page. So if 20% of a page is three lines, let's say, or two lines, I try and cut two lines per page. People are like, well, hold on a second. <laughs> But my words, they are magic. And I'm like, I know your words are magic. And some pages will be so perfect that you cannot remove those two lines. Fair enough. Turn the page. Guarantee you, you'll find four lines on the next page you can remove. If it doesn't advance, and this is Vonnegut, so this is straight Vonnegut. If it doesn't advance the plot or illuminate your character, a sentence. If a sentence doesn't advance your plot or illuminate your character, cut the sentence out. Cut it out. Or fix it, I guess, if you really want to keep it. Um, you know, you do have to cut a lot of darlings. Sometimes the darling is the whole character. Sometimes it's the whole plot thread. Um, but you gotta, you gotta go in. And that holy shit chainsaw for me is great because I do it twice, which means that by the time I'm done with the book, 50% of the book that I wrote in that first draft is gone, but is replaced by succinct ideas and sentences and words and the right word choice. And I get to really sort of play with it. So that was a long answer to a short no, question. No, that's really helpful. Now, I am wondering, how the hell do you know all this? Was this something that was intuitive? Your holy shit chainsaw style of editing? Or is this something I just made that... made it up. <laughs> I mean, but the thing is, it's got to come from somewhere. Was it because you were an avid reader as a kid? Was it because, did you go to, you know, did you take workshops and, or you had this influential workshop teacher before that's kind of told you about like, you know, the more succinct it is, the better the writing is? I always feel like every writer is influenced by someone or some readings. I mean, like a lot of my favorite books, um, and I, you know, I know he's a dead white guy and I don't care. Kurt Vonnegut and I, I mean, I have him tattooed on my arm, not like him, because that'd be creepy, uh, but like it's a representation of him. And, um, and the reason I like Kurt is, well, same, he was more concerned with the human condition than 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 anything else. His books were short and they were very, very powerful. And it, I tried to sell, uh, there's a book called Why People Take Pictures, which actually became part of Gloria O'Brien's History of the Future. But anyway, I tried to sell this book and, and publishers would come back and I, it was an adult book and they just kept saying it's too short. And I'm like, dude, it's 52,000 words. I'm looking at Catching the Rye. I'm looking at Hemingway. I'm looking at Steinbeck crying out loud. Some of his best books are like 25,000 words long. Um, and I was very like, I was confused by this. I like this. It's funny because, you know, we're talking about a book that's 400 pages long. It's very complicated. Um, but I like that short, succinct stuff. Um, and Vonnegut really, uh, his his writing advice, it's, it's what I hand to my students when I meet them. And I just handed it to a bunch of students at that conference the other day. Um, it's just his eight rules for writing fiction. Um, and they're, they're very simple. You know, your character has to want something, even if it's a glass of water. Um, and that other one I just said to you about cutting sentences that don't, you know, illuminate or, or move forward. Um, but no, you know, my last write, my, my like official writing class was the, I, I left college after one semester and then went to art school. So, um, my last writing class was, was basically comp 101 in 1988. Uh, right out, right. I graduated high school. I haven't had a writing class since. What I did was I read. I read like crazy. So like when I read something like Salman Rushdie, so Salman Rushdie is, is who got me writing. Um, but I was reading. I'd read all the Vonnegut. I'm reading Tom Robbins. Reading a, a lot of actually a lot of white guys. A lot of a lot of what I thought I would be reading had I gone to college for writing. So mostly like you know everybody from Burroughs to Camus, but still all white guys. And um, um, and then. 
I got into Gabriel Garcia Marquez um, and I got into, and I, because Rushdie got me right in there. I was like, I need more of this. Um, so it is a lot of what I'm reading. Um, what's helped me a lot with my writing is writing other things, poetry, short stories. Um, I sucked at short stories the first time around. I thought they were, I thought they were great, but they're really awful. And then when I, I did them again and I, I, I was, I was good at them. And, and that helped me find the economy of words. But when it comes down to like that, holy shit, chainsaw revision, it's usually just massive desperation. I read the book. I still think it sucks. And I want to burn it. I'm like, I can't burn it. So let's cut out 25%. (laughs) You know, let's see what I can really do here to make it the most simplified thing I can do. Um, I can make it. It's it's kind of like weeding a garden. Like when you really weed or really clean up your garden, there's nothing like that feeling. You look out at it and there's no weeds and the plants are all looking real nice and the soil's all brown and rich and I don't know. So no, there was nothing other than honestly trusting your gut. You've got to trust your gut. And here's, here's, this ties it back to your first question. How do you feel like a writer? Ah, see, if you don't feel like a writer, then you're not going to think like a writer or you're going to think that you're not allowed. You don't have permission to think like a writer. Therefore, you don't have permission to trust your gut because what the hell is your gut? Your gut's stupid. It's not a writer. Um, and all these things. And it's all that fear of failure, fear of success. All that stuff's caught up in your gut. Your gut is super important. When you're reading your work, you have to flag the stuff that you think sucks. Even if you're, and even if you're wrong, you can come back three, three reads later and go, no, nope, this still works. Forget it. I'm turning it back to black text now. Um, but for a while, like, and I still do, I, I will still skip things that put red flags up. I'm, I'm not good. At, I'm not great at this. Like I st- it still takes me, you know, hundreds of drafts, but, but the revision's great. Cause it's where you get to like, really like, uh, I don't know, dress your character in, in what's comfortable for them and what fits and what's real. I don't know. So, you know, you make up your own holy shit chainsaw, whatever it's called, whatever it is. For me, it was just because I'm a math nerd and it was easy and it was fun and it seemed like a good idea. Um, but there's also really great prompts out there. I had a student uh, do one recently where they said, take a paragraph. And this actually wasn't theirs. They took it from someone else. So I can't remember who gets credit for this, but it's someone very smart. But take a paragraph, set it out as a poem. Um you know, use the word choice as if it was a poem and then stick it back in paragraph form and see what happens. And that, that's a beauty. That was great. And I cannot remember who she, she did say whose um, prompt that is, but that, that really, that's a good one. Um, that's also goes back to economy of words then, right? Cause you're trying to tell, you know, trying to tell that part of the story in, in, a, in poetry. So you're, you're limiting your words. So you know, there's so many tricks with revision that way, which is, you know, wonderful. Um, but yeah, I just kind of came up with it on my own because I felt like it wasn't working. And if it's not working, what will we do? I'm, I'm a born problem solver, I guess. Okay. I know again, you're very modest and you're like, you don't like all that bragging thing. So I'm just going to tell you, you are freaking brilliant. Um, like I will call it, like I see it, you're so fucking smart oh my god i'm just looking at my feet now this no no I, know, I know i know i know put your muffs on um but <laughs> damn okay thank you for that because that's actually actionable for listeners yeah. to actually apply this, yeah and it, whether they apply their own whole and now the only thing if you're going to use the holy shit chainsaw revision method you must actually rename your file in all caps 
It has to say, holy shit, chainsaw, and then the title of your book with the date on it. And by the way, if you're not saving your book every day, save a new style of your book every single day with a new date on it. It's important because yes. if you start chainsawing shit out and you're like, where the hell is that part where so-and-so does this? And you're like, oh, shit. Then you, you need those there so you can search. Oh, my God. This sounds bad. This sounds like this has happened to you before. Oh, yeah. But it's good. Like, find the sentence. You're like, because you know, the th- like three words, like the phrase that was in the sentence. You're like, ah, uh, or in that paragraph, you're like, ah, uh, and you just search it. And it comes up from like two weeks ago. Feels like two years ago, but it was only two weeks ago. You cut that shit out of your manuscript. Time moves so differently inside of a book. But yeah. So make sure you're saving it every day with the date on it. So it's going to say, holy shit, chainsaw, and then title, your title here, and then, uh, you date. know, whatever this yeah, date. Yeah, yes. yeah, exactly. 2, 17, 19, and save that. Because you know what? Files are tiny. Files, Word files are tiny. Damn. Okay, that was really helpful. There was a tweet by Andrew Carr on Twitter. I sound mm-hmm. like a grandma saying this. Um, and he <laughs> mentioned, so I'm still trying to get my way around Twitter. So he was quoting and saying another star for Dick. Okay, close your ears. It was a beautiful review and said, I'm so pleased with this review, particularly with this simple statement. King's narrative concerns are racism, patriarchy, colonialism, white privilege, and the ingrained systems that perpetuate them. And I know earlier, we also, you also mentioned, it's a lot about love too. And a lot from that quote, like, you know, I actually wrote this down when you were sharing it, where Kay Tempest, the song, I'm screaming at my loved ones to love more. It was, it's has to do with that as well. Mm. And then also touching back in the very beginning, also sprinkling throughout our conversation, the human condition. So when you wrote Dig, did you know that you were writing something that had such an impact on people when it came to the human condition, just kind of tying everything together. I'm just like, Mm. just dealing with nine characters, dealing with three freaking generations of people, all with their own baggage and different things that they're dealing with. I would just assume for myself that I would have trouble even just fleshing out the nine characters. So then here Mm. you are, you know, you're doing so much more in that you're stirring up conversations you make people think you make people right. aware you know what i don't even know what the hell my question is i'm number one i'm in awe that's what i think the answer to your question is and when you when you start a book like and it's funny because i i had this interview where i i'm it's a you know i have to type it i have to answer the questions um on a word document and it said what sparked the idea for this book and and i went well, i knew i wanted to write about whiteness and that's where it's, and that's, that sounds so wide and sounds kind of stupid in my world because i didn't want to write about white privilege i wanted just whiteness and what is whiteness? And then I kind of got into this, this thing where these characters I was writing, I think what I want to do, I think my main goal in every book is to write characters that are so like you, meaning you, any of you, whoever's you, whoever you is, you is the reader, There's, that, that you can find something. You can go, oh, shit, yeah, I thought like that once, or oh yeah, that happened to me, or oh yeah, it's it's universal, that's the whole point. Um, And so I did have, I didn't have a plot, I didn't have a roadmap, but I hopped in the white car, and I wanted to drive the white car around for a while, and see what the white car felt like. Now I'm white, so I already know what the white car feels like. It's being stopped by a cop after doing 100 miles an hour, and getting away with not only my life, but no ticket. Um, (laughs) But it also meant that I got hit on too. Um, And you know, I might've used that to my advantage. So 
the point is, is, you know, that's being a white woman. But anyway, I knew I was in the white car. I wanted to ride around in it. And the one thing I'm hearing back from early readers of this book is, oh, shit, this is my family. And it's people who totally this isn't their family, except in some way it is. In some way, we all have that uncle who will make a racist joke. We all have that uncomfortable moment with our parents when they're like, well, you know, I'm not racist. Well, of course we're not racist. Like, we're, you know, but mm, uh, if we're not, you know, recognizing the white supremacy, then we are. Um, and so I don't know. I, that's kind of way too strict, actually. That's a way too strict definition of it. But at the same time, for me, I did have a roadmap in a way, and it was just to uncover the reality of whiteness, not some extreme, but I did put the extreme in there because they were people I knew. And I wanted to put that in there so that you could look at the two different things. Well, these people are good white people. These people are bad white people. Oh shit, these good white people aren't so good anymore. Oh shit, okay. And, and, and then to have the smartest among us who are the youth, the smartest because their minds hopefully are open enough. We are so dumb as we get older because we had this little tiny little little thing we see. We just see this tiny little part of the world because we had to back up our decisions that might have been shitty. We had to, you know, we had to defend ourselves because we made a bad choice. We we're afraid of making mistakes to this day. We get worse the older we get. We can't admit we're wrong. We can't apologize. We can't do any of those things. And so suddenly you've got the one generation that can actually look at everything in the in the white car, I'll say, while I'm driving the white car, and they're going, oh, shit. Okay, things are, look like this. And at that moment, we all, we've all white people, we've all been at that moment, right? We chose to do, you know, you've got a million choices to do, you know, of what to do with that thought. And, and I wanted to show that moment in time where you can choose to go, okay, I'm going to be part of the solution, not the problem, versus... Oh, look at how, and, and, and while also showing, look at how easy it is to be part of the problem. It's so easy. I mean, it's right there. You can just, all you got to do as a white person is nothing. That's it. All you got, <laughs> that's all you got to do. That's all you got to do. And, and not talk about it and not, you know, not, just not think about it because we have the privilege of not having to think about this at all. That is privilege to not have to think about any of this shit to argue with a woman of color about what white privilege is, is hilarious. That's, 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 but it's not funny, but it's, to me, it's mind blowing. And yet a majority of white people would do that. And we had a moment and that moment's always there. It's here right now. I'm about to turn 49. It's right here. And I'm on this boat, not that boat. I don't want to be on that boat. And you know what, on that boat, that's not the clan boat. The clan boat's way over there. They're nuts. They're way over there. They're crazy people. Um, as far as I'm concerned, no offense to any clan listeners. Uh, I just oh, think- no, don't you worry. We do <laughs> not have that in this audience. Yep, no. So that's the idea. Like, yeah, I did have. So I did have that. And the most important thing is to. It's it's not that every book is an autobiography. Andrew Smith has said it recently. Um, he said every book is a self-portrait. I like that. That's totally Smith's, not mine. And whether he was actually quoting someone else, I don't know. So there you go. I'm always digging to, to see what's inside me that's universal. And so that's how I got there. You know, so I did kind of know, I knew I wanted to explore whiteness and I didn't know how, 
but at the same time, in each person's life, there's a chunk of whiteness, including like Loretta. When you look at Loretta at the end, she's not really, she's still not really with it. She still thinks that she's in front of the circus audience for the most part. She's not really together because she's had such trauma. And, and yet she's with these caretakers, her, 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 um, we'll say her family members, uh, distant family members who, who will be able to hopefully hold her hand and, and get her to that place because she hasn't made up her mind yet because she's been too busy, um, surviving in a shitty place. So, so yeah, so it's, it's there to be able to grab you by yourself by your own neck. That's what I try and do. I try and grab you by your own neck with my book, which makes no sense, but I'm grabbing myself by my own ear or my own neck at the same time and say, hey, listen, you think about this shit. That's all. That's all I'm asking you to do. Think about it. I mean, my name is asking, so I'm asking you to do something. Right? And that's, that's, that's sort of, for me, that's the bargain you make when you read an asking book. You make, you make a bargain to at least maybe think. You may not understand what the hell you just read sometimes, but, but at least you're going, what the f- what was that about? What was that about? And and that's a question that I'd like you to ask. <laughs> God, that was so good. Amy, you are a true fucking artist. You yeah. know that? You are a true artist. <sighs> cool. That's good. I'm glad because I'm broke. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> On a side note, I didn't realize when you put A.S. King together, it's asking, am I stupid or what? Like, but was that... That was purely by coincidence, yes? Yeah, totally on purpose. Um, no, it was totally on purpose. I wanted to do initials because there's another Amy King. When I came back from Ireland, I was off the grid. So I came back from Ireland and I Googled myself and I went, oh shit, there's another Amy King and she's a writer and she's got blonde hair and, and she lives in Brooklyn. And she's, you know, so I was like, oh shit, no, that's not going to work. So, and I didn't want to take her name. It's also her maiden name. I didn't want to take her name. This is my married name and I still kept oh. my name. So that's where the, and I, I kept my maiden name as my middle name and that's what the S stands for. So I was like, okay. And I write gender neutral books and I was tired of being told as a woman. And I, I don't usually admit this, but I didn't do it because of this. A lot of people will say, oh, I, I initialize because women, you know, if they write boy characters like JK Rowling, you know, if they write boy characters, you know, they're not going to sell. Um, and that's not why I did it. But I did do it because I planned on writing gen- gender neutral work. I am very, I hate to say it this way, but I mean, if people who know me would probably say I'm a very masculine woman, I think that's bullshit. Cause I'm just a woman and a me, but, mm-hmm. um, you know, I do, and I do a lot of work with male survivors and I have a, you know, men are a concern of mine. I think that is just like with race, you know, if you don't start, look, we're not going to take care of racism if we just talk to people who aren't white. White is the problem, so we need to talk to that, you know, to, to that that thinking. Same with men. I mean, we have to really, really care about men very much um, in order to get them to understand that they need to change um, in order to make this a more equitable society in that way. So... Um, same with white people, but yeah, uh, yeah. So the AS, it was it was all just a mix of all of it. I was like, oh, gender neutral. Oh, look, it spells asking. Great. All my old teachers will think this is hilarious because that's all I ever did was ask stupid ass questions and then nearly fail their class. <laughs> um, that's all I did. And I was like, yeah, okay, great answer. Screw you. I'm not doing the homework. Um, <laughs> Listen, yes. Amy, thank you for the work that you're doing. Truly, okay. not only in your artistry with writing, but also with what comes with it, which is going to schools and talking to these kids and and waking them up you're choosing to be part of the solution in the best way that you know how so thank you thanks thanks a million this was awesome you are amazing can you wait can you let the listeners know where they can find you online 
Absolutely. You can find me at, um, actually, you probably just have to Google A.S. King, but it's as-king.com. That's where you find me. I'm also on Twitter um, at A.S. You can actually find all this stuff on the website. I'm not good with this stuff, but A.S. underscore King um, on Twitter. I'm not really on Twitter much. I got to be honest. It's um, it's too, I'm a, I don't know, I'm a gentle soul and Twitter's kind of like warrior stuff. I put my warrior stuff in my books, <laughs> um, but I'm on Instagram as well. Um, and you can find me there again through my website. Um, and if anybody wants to write me um, anything, I have a contact page there as well. Um, tour dates will come up soon. I'm coming to, um, I'll be in Phoenix, uh, my favorite store, Changing Hands. I'm a big indie bookstore supporter. In fact, I'm a huge kind of rabid indie bookstore supporter. So I'll be in Changing Hands in Phoenix. I'll be an avid bookstore in Athens, Georgia. I'll be at Politics and Prose in April, early April. But all those dates will go up soon. And I'll be at Children's Book World and and just a bunch of other places. Um, And yeah, trying to talk about, I'm not even sure, just reading and trying to talk about this stuff. Human condition. Human condition. It's all about that. It's all I got. Thank you, Amy. Thank you, Ian. This was such a great conversation. Have a wonderful rest of your Sunday. And that wraps up our episode with A.S. King. Amy, thank you so much for your time and for such a kick-ass conversation. I had an incredible time talking with you. I know listeners are going to love all of your wisdom and advice that you shared. Storytellers, thank you for hanging out and listening in as always. Please be sure to drop by and say hi to Amy over on Twitter at AS underscore King. And don't forget to head over to her show notes page at 88cupsofteacom slash podcast slash AS dash King to download her writing prompt and to also find all the resources and books mentioned during her episode. If you'd love to tangibly support our show and also receive early access to our interviews, head over to patreon.com slash 88 cups of tea to sign up as a proud patron who we also lovingly refer to as super storytellers. And thank you so much in advance for supporting 88 cups of tea. Have a super productive week and I'll catch you not next Thursday, but the one after that. Hey guys, it's me again. Thanks so much for listening in on 88 Cups of Tea. Go create something magical today and I'll catch you in the next episode. Bye.